0: For many of us, a peculiar aspect of being human is the erroneous belief that we are somehow exempt from certain life rules. One of those rules is aging. So here's my confession about how I thought I was exempt. It took me forever to accept the fact that I needed reading glasses. Somehow I believed my eyes were meant to remain the eyes of a teenager. And every time I'd asked to borrow some readers, my wife would lovingly remind me To embrace reality and carry glasses. My guest, Dr. Gerald Shapiro, is a psychologist, author, and professor of psychology at Santa Clara University. He has written extensively about existential psychology, fatherhood, group therapy, and couples therapy. He has been interviewed on multiple media outlets, including The Oprah Winfrey Show. Without question, Jerry is one of the most beloved professors I have ever known, and with good reason. He is supremely knowledgeable and relates his knowledge with massive doses of levity, relatability, and kindness, as you will hear in this interview. His latest book, Finding Meaning, Facing Fears, explores how to feel empowered around aging, and has been described as a must-read for everyone beyond the age of 45. So listen in as Jerry and I talk about finding meaning as we age. Dr. Gerald Shapiro, who has asked me to call him Jerry, welcome to Super Psyched.
1: It's great to be with you again.
0: Oh, it's so great. We have a long history and it goes back to my master's days. And it's so much fun to bump into Santa Clara grads who did their master's in counseling psychology there. And every time I meet someone who did, I always ask the same question and I always get the same response. I say, do you know Jerry Shapiro? And they say, Of course, I know Jerry Shapiro. And they get very excited. And everybody has a great Jerry Shapiro story. So, if nothing else, you've been something of a Johnny Appleseed in terms of <laughs> proliferating great stories, great feelings to kind of harken back to your Hawaiian days, great vibes. So, just wanted you to know that.
1: Thank you. That's the most gratifying thing you could say.
0: You know, last night, my son and I were watching the Friends Reunion, and it's served as a reminder that. In addition to death and taxes, aging is also a certainty as long as, of course, we survive. have the gift of survival. So it's not necessarily a certainty. It's a certainty with an asterisk. And lo and behold, these six people who are so dear to us in the form of Ross, Joey, Rachel, Phoebe, Chandler, and Monica, who are frozen in time on the reruns, showed up 17 years after their last episode and reminded us that As gorgeous as they are even today, they too are not immune from the aging process. I'm thinking about the book that you've written, which is such a timely book. You've decided to make it into a second edition. Clearly, you wanted to double down. This is clearly important to you, given the fact that you are in what you describe as the seventh inning of the baseball game, and it represents an opportunity cost in time. And that you would double down rather than writing a new book means that this book, Finding Meaning, Facing Fears, would be something that required revising right now. And I'm wondering what compelled you to double down and to invest your time in this book?
1: So there were three things. One of them was that it was written for people in the 40s through the 60s. And when I wrote the original a decade ago, that was all the boomers. And now Generation X has entered that phase. Yep. And so there are differences. And I wanted to know more about that, what it was like for this generation, because I knew about the boomers, but I wanted to know what it was like for Generation X. And there are some major differences. So that was a compelling thing. Another one was COVID. Right. That changes a great deal. And the third one was the book was sold out. It's a funny kind of thing. The publishing house that published the book sold out to another one and they didn't want to republish it. It wasn't their book.
0: What was it that you wanted to let us know as Gen Xers?
1: So all of my work always starts with questions that I have. I wanted to know if your experience of going through this very major transition, I wanted to know if this was different for people in Gen X. And of course, there are a lot of alumni. It wasn't so much current students, but more alumni.
0: Sure. We're Um, alums now.
1: And I wanted to know just starting out. So I started to talk to a number of people, and then it started to snowball because I heard some very different kinds of things, different ways of approaching issues, some very different reactions to the boomer generation. The Gen X generation is, in some ways, much more conservative, mm. much more safety oriented mm. than the boomers were. Right. And what's fascinating <laughs> this is just another jump, but the current undergrads and graduate students, you know, folks in their late teens and early 20s, they think they're much more radical, much more liberal. And they're even more conservative than the boomers or the Gen X's.
0: And defined conservative as you mean it in this context.
1: Well, the easiest way to talk about it is they talk about, for example, oh, we're part of the hookup generation.
0: Uh huh.
1: Right. They talk about
0: those. Totally. Not thinking about the summer of love, of course.
1: Right. And, you know, I feel like I'm the one who has to tell them that you really need to talk to your grandparents about what it was. What that was really like.
0: <laughs> oh my God. And I find that particularly amazing. If you think about the Eisenhower years, going from Eisenhower years, all of a sudden to just an entirely new paradigm. I mean, that is so radical and mm-hmm. so abrupt. That's just amazing. That could be an entire interview unto itself. For now, we're going to stick <laughs> <Yep>. with aging <laughs> and, and existential fears and concerns. But here we are in a society that worships youth and humans having brains, we are wired to conform. So, of course, everybody wants to look young. And you wrote a little piece in one of the chapters about how you stopped whining and began to embrace the aging process yourself. Can you give any tips on how people can healthfully embrace their own aging processes?
1: Well, I think the biggest part of it involves having a good sense of humor and being able to laugh at yourself. and. You know, it hits in all kinds of ways. I played sports for the longest time, and you know, you get injured. You have injuries. You have, you pull something, you, you know, you tweak an ankle. You, you know, these things occur. Definitely. you, You have a sense. I mean, I used to have a sense, okay, I'm going to be out for about four or five days. Right. And then I was back at a certain age. You're not out for four or five days. You're out for four or five months. Absolutely. The same injury, not as resilient. Things don't heal. Right. But there's another phenomenon that's in here that I think is of great value. And that is, we don't know who does this, but sometime in our late thirties, early forties, sometime in our life, while we're asleep one night, someone sneaks into our house and changes all the rules so that if you keep doing what you've always done, the yields are diminished.
0: Wow. So we live under this fallacy that if we keep doing what we've always done.
1: Yeah. If I just try harder, if I just work at something harder, things will work out. And in reality, not so much. Absolutely. And it's not wrong. It's just that our lives change, the context changes, and we need to start looking at a different kind of life balance. How do we do that? Well, you know, for one thing, uh, it happens to us. You have kids that are still at home. Yes. we have two boys who are still at home. Parenting is a major part of what you're doing. Huge. You know, your relationship is built around those kids. Your work involves them. Your friends, I don't know about you personally, but most people's friends are the parents of their kids' friends. The other parents on the soccer team. Well, at some point, you start not having that connection, that center to your life. And the center starts to move. And you have to find where you want it to move. And you get some choices. And that's like what Frankel was talking about. You get to choose where you want to go to.
0: So, Jerry, one of the things that you actually talk about is that aging is a subjective experience based upon many different different kinds of aging. So I was wondering if you could break those down.
1: So if I ask you how old you are, you're going to respond with your chronological age. Right. Right. And we all know a chronological age. Totally. There are other ages. There's a body age. Our bodies age in different ways at different times. Definitely. My wife always tells me that I look, that I'm younger than the people I hang around, even though I'm much older. Our bodies age differently. Sure. You go to a high school reunion and there are people who look like they did at age 18. Right. And there are other people who look like their great grandparents and they're the same chronological age. Exactly. Right. It just so body age is one psychological age how well have i dealt with those necessary transitions necessary issues in life you know how well have i mastered various kinds of issues we all have to deal with social age and that's the comparison one. Oh, you know adam is way ahead of me mm. he's already made this much money adam's got a better job he's a manager already
0: The status,
1: you know, the social age. I love that old Tom Lehrer line, which is so telling to me. You know, that where he's he says it's sobering to realize that when Mozart was my age, he'd been dead for 10 years.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's so Good.
1: good. You know, and it's like so we do a comparison there. There's a reference age, which is the most fun. And let me ask you this when you think of yourself, what age are you? I'm
0: 17. 17. I mean, either 17 or 28. It depends. Yeah.
1: But look how quick that came, right? No question. So in the book, I asked everyone that question, you know, what's your reference age? You know? Yeah. And remember, these are all people between mid forties to
0: mid sixties, right?
1: That's what the books, you know, geared to that transition. Or as I like to say, anybody who might become that age, right? Right. So we asked everyone that question all, but one, one person said her chronological age. Right. Everyone else had a time in their late 20s, or early 30s. Sure. Right.
0: Absolutely. And if you ask
1: me what my age is, it's 38.
0: Why 38? I just that was like the best time of my life. And that's around the time you got married.
1: It's when I met my wife. It's when I got married. It's when we had our daughter. I mean, that was like the
0: great age. Salad days. Yeah. And yet, could we also create an argument that you're in your salad days now?
1: Absolutely. I think I am. And, you know, if I use my wife as an example, so she's younger than I am, but she retired this year from doing psychotherapy. She loved doing therapy. She loved teaching, you know, all those things. She loves retirement more than anything. Mm. She is just happy in retirement. Her days are full. She's excited. She's doing things. I mean, it's terrific.
0: A lot of thoughts co-occurring. And I think that you and I can attend to them all, including deathbed regret. And one of the th- big deathbed regrets that we may have is not having gone for something not having risked not having ventured out and i'm wondering how is it that we can perhaps either avoid that while we're alive or perhaps pivot or even redo
1: i have two answers for you the sure. first one is no one on their deathbed ever says oh i wish i had spent more time at the office yeah that doesn't happen but the answer to your question, which is, of course, the most central question of all of this, is fear. The status quo. So let me back up here. There's a constant tension in our lives between freedom and security. They're always in tension. And at the security end, the risk is stagnation. Too much mm-hmm.
0: security
1: is stagnation, suffocation. Yep. At the freedom end, too much freedom is facing the fears of the unknown. And ultimately, that's mortality. So we always titrate those. We're always in balance, not only in macro ways, but in every moment, right? In every moment, we're balancing freedom and security. And security is almost always a process issue, not a content issue. So it's like the status quo pulls us in. And it's safe to keep doing what I want to do. And you and I both know from being psychotherapists, there are people in horrible relationships and horrible situations who don't leave, even as awful as it is, because it's my terror. It's my horrible life. It's not something I don't know about. And people stay because they're terrified of the unknown, which, like I said, ultimately is mortality.
0: You know, I often think about the two riverbanks through which the river of kind of mental health flows, the bank of rigidity and the bank of chaos. And you're kind of speaking to those in terms of security and the unknown. And how these two extremes, these two polarized extremes really are important for us to be aware of on our existential dashboard. And you really spoke to it well, saying it's a process issue and not a content issue. Can you elaborate on that? For people who aren't in the field, like what do you mean by it being a process issue and not a content issue? Process is basically
1: content in context. Okay, so the content of what's going on right now at this moment is the words that you and I are saying to each other. You know, we're having a very pleasant conversation. We're talking about things. We're getting into greater depth. That's the content, what we're doing. The process is what's going on, where this content is occurring. So it's not just the conversation. It's the conversation with someone we know a little bit, maybe a lot. It's within the framework of a relationship. It's what we're both trying to accomplish from it. So it's all those things.
0: Yeah. And that kind of brings in the idea of mindfulness, which has really entered our sphere in a big way. I know someone with the same last name as you is really become quite a voice in that and being there for like, it's one thing to just eat for sustenance, that's content. And I guess the process is enjoying what we eat while we're eating it enjoying life while we're living it. We could be doing all the right things. We could be living the, you know, the Boy Scouts motto, but not really living an authentic life. And that would be, I guess, to your point around content versus process. And I would imagine that the existential regrets are, as you just said, more, I mean, it makes so much sense. You just made it so easy for us to understand, like it's the process. It's It's not the content as much. It's a very
1: powerful pull to keep doing what I'm doing. The problem is, as I mentioned before, some someone or something has snuck into our lives and changed the rules so that if we keep doing it the way we've always done it, we don't get the same yield.
0: What got us here will not get us there.
1: One of my chapters of, in the book is the, the chapter title is 60 is the New
0: 60. I loved that title. That was so funny. And it was so you, by the way, to have written that. It was very cheeky and spot on. But what did you mean when you said 60 is the New 60?
1: If I keep living my 40s or my 30s or my 20s all the way through life, I cheat myself out of being 50 and 60 and 70. And there are some real wonderful things that occur at different ages. And if I keep having to be my younger self, I don't get a chance to experience. You know, I'm a grandfather right now. I love being a grandfather. I mean, and hanging out with my grandson is into baseball that's like the greatest gift for me ever and we spent a little time about three weeks ago and he was talking about how he always hits the ball in a certain area and the coaches are telling him he has a swing later or earlier and stuff and it was just such a joy for me to talk to him about just switching his feet moving his feet to another position and the, the moments we had together the you know grandfather grandson moments were exquisite well when i was coaching college kids in baseball i never could have done it with that kind of feel or that kind of i hesitate to use wisdom for anything i do but it <laughs> felt wise in terms of i could talk to this kid you know who i just adore but i could talk to him in a way that went right in for him i talked 11 years old
0: to him. And you were just fully present in your role and with who he was.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we had the greatest afternoon.
0: Oh, it sounds amazing. Process. The content was amazing. The process was absolutely amazing.
1: It was just thrilling. And, and, you know, that's the joy of being my age. And if I keep being my 20s, I'm going to be a less and less good 20 over the years.
0: You know, I'm going to go back to the idea, these existential regrets and the fears and how they act as kryptonite in our lives and how we may stay in a familiar hell, not willing to enter an unfamiliar paradise of some some kind. And you see this all the time. I mean, I see this all the time where people are conflicted. So they stay in a relationship and a month becomes a year, becomes five years and slowly it becomes decade or decades And incredible amounts of regret. Let's talk about that for a little bit. From where you sit, you've seen this phenomenon all over the place.
1: One of the things I've found to be very successful with that is to work with people because the fear of the unknown is so great. I will usually say, Hey, Adam, are you willing to try just a thought experiment for like four minutes?
0: Definitely, Jerry, you hit me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And so, so no one, everyone says that, right? Everyone says, Yeah, sure, four minutes. Four minutes isn't going to kill me. Four minutes. And I just have them try thought experiments. What if I stayed? What if I left? What if I tried this? Good friend of mine, dear friend, retired early, and one day we were chatting, and he and I asked him, you know, so what? You know, what are you going to do with retirement? How are you going to do it? He said, Well, I have lots of ideas. I've thought about a number of things, but you know, the one thing I can't do is I always want to be in a rock and roll band. Mm. And so I said, Well, you know you're a 60 something man sounds perfect for a rock band for me
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: he, we both laughed and i said so you know what would stop you and he said well you know i'm 60 something right and we just thought it through we just kind of talked about well imagine if you were who would, where would you play who would you play?" He did not want to be famous you just want to be in a band
0: totally he wanted the experience of this
1: right and i asked him was he ever like that as a kid and he said When I was a teenager, I used to play the guitar, but, you know, long gone now. And I said, you still have a guitar? And he said, yeah, I still have my old guitar. I said, play something for me. So he went into the other room, pulled it out, and he started to play something. And it was pretty good. It wasn't great, but it was pretty good. And (laughs) He said, I'm not that good anymore. I said, well, how could you improve? He started to take lessons, got in touch with another group of some other guys. He plays in a band now, and they play all over the area. And that these little, is little bars and stuff. I mean, there's no money in it, of course.
0: But I, it's the sheer love of it.
1: He loves it. His wife goes all the time. She loves it. His kids go. We've gone. It's just like this is what turns him on. And often it's the things that we used to be into. And we let go for very good reason. We let go to finish schooling. We let go to build a family. We Let go to have a career. Let go to build a life. But those are things that are really were appealing to us. And what happens if we were to revisit some of those, not the newest things, but what happens if we were to review some of those things with a new vision, with a new approach? You know, it's those kinds of things that are anti regret issues.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how that dash between our birth date and our death date is ours to fill with whatever we choose. And there is something about that choice that can incur so much anxiety in addition to the death anxiety itself, like the recognition that our brains can actually imagine ourselves dying, especially being exposed to death itself. That said, it's our job to fill it with moments that take our breath away. And when I hear about this 60 year old man who decided to exhume his guitar from its dusty crypt, and begin playing and finding new life where it was previously atrophied, just finding just like incredible amounts of musculature and love <laughs> and life. And, you know, interestingly, my wife recently started taking up the piano again. She plays every night without fail and she loves playing. And as you know, I entered the workforce. I was in the corporate world for well north of a decade, nearly two decades before I returned to psychology. And like your friend, the guitarist, so many summons, almost like the, if you build it, he will come phenomenon from Field of Dreams. And I would wake up in the middle of the night. I I once had to go to the hospital because I was having a panic attack. And I just was so profoundly unfulfilled. My wife said, do it. I want a happy husband. I don't care what it costs. I don't care how much money we lose. And it was a massive gamble. And Mm -hmm. what I got in return was so big, so life affirming. And I think about The relationships that we stay in when we shouldn't, the jobs we stay in when there's something more meaningful out there. And pairing that with what you know as an existential psychologist, can you tell us what is an existential psychologist for the layperson?
1: So we deal with the issues that are universal in human life. right? (laughs) And we work with clients and we work with those issues to uh, help people find meaning. So for you, for example, your change, your risky shift was to find meaning and it worked. You did. Huge. So there are universal issues for humans. You know, as far as we know, we're the only species that really knows about mortality.
0: And that we're going to die.
1: We have to find meaning. We are driven to find (laughs) meaning. We have to deal with isolation. And we have to deal with the issues of freedom and the responsibility that comes with freedom. So, those are the four quote givens. Mm-hmm. And if we avoid those, we can stay under the radar, so to speak, but we live our life pretty hunched over, kind of going through the tunnel, the same tunnel over and over again. And exactly. When we start dealing with them, we encounter every one of these brings up what we call existential anxiety. And this is healthy anxiety. This is the engine of growth. And so by being with that anxiety and helping us work with it, we move into much more fruitful aspects of life. Now, the contrast to that is neurotic anxiety. And neurotic anxiety is anxiety that keeps us from facing existential anxiety. So you're familiar with Waimea Bay.
0: I wanted to bring that one up, Carlos and Anita okay so allow me to just bring this one up because this one blew my mind so you did your postdoc after being in waterloo freezing your butt off then you go to the opposite extreme you go to hawaii and there's a a rock in north shore of oahu where people jump off it's kind of a rite of passage and you described anita a 49 year old client who jumped off and it was life-changing versus carlos who decided not to yeah and it was also life-changing. Yep. Each of them experienced a life-changing event based on why may Rock and their existential choice, that microcosm of an existential moment. And, and I got to tell you, as you unpack it for my listeners, it actually caused a shift in my perception of something I often dole out, which is we don't really regret our failures. We regret not having tried. This seemed to be an asterisk on that. So what happened with Anita and Carlos and talk about the Waimera Rock?
1: So they both faced their fears and they both made choices. This is Frankel' choices based on facing the fears. And the answer is facing it not to be counterphobic, right? I mean, being counterphobic is not the answer. It's facing the fears and deciding what you choose to do. They both made choices and they both were exhilarated even though they took very different pathways.
0: So by Anita jumping and facing her fears and her phobia that way, she was helped. And by Carlos saying, it's okay, I don't need to do it. I don't need to do everything. I don't need yeah, to do he reckless. said something even
1: more powerful. He said, me. I'm looking at it and I don't want to do it. In fact, he said to me at one point, he said, you know, I could have done it. I knew I could have, and I didn't want to. And I couldn't believe how good that made me feel
0: just by being true.
1: Yeah. Now what would neurotic anxiety be? I can't drive out to the rock. I forgot to put gas in my car, so I can't get out there. I couldn't find parking. Those are the neurotic things that would keep me from doing it.
0: That idea of volition. I didn't want to. It strikes me as so powerful. It is so life affirming. It is. I didn't want to. To your earliest point, when we were talking, you were speaking of what got us here isn't going to get us there. And one of the certainties in life is that change is inevitable and that how adaptable we are seems to be consistent in all schools of thought.
1: Let me add to that with the other inevitable part of life is loss. You know, from the time we start developing we start having losses. That's right. We lose people, of course, in our lives. We lose capacities as we age. And this 40 to 60-year-old group is where that really becomes noticeable. Can't do what I used to do. A friend of mine was saying, I had to stop getting on extension ladders. I now only get on six-step ladders. And of course, you lose appearance. Your appearance changes. You don't have that youthful look anymore. And if those things become the things that are so important, you lock yourself in. So, you know, I lock myself into I can still stay up with the young kids. Sure. You know, so you lock yourself into being an a not so good young kid.
0: Because fundamentally you're not.
1: Yeah. You know, on the other hand, if you recognize, wait a minute. The young kids can do things that help me. I'll give you two examples of my own life please that are that one is was wonderful. one was uncomfortable. I'll do the uncomfortable one. okay. I came to a realization about eight years ago that both my kids were better drivers than I am. Mm. This is an unheard of
0: experience <laughs> has That's never happened never in the history of humans,
1: but I was aware. Because they had this weird thing that they would use when they were driving. Um, uh,
0: reflexes. Yes, I've heard of those. <laughs> They're very important.
1: I, you remember reflexes.
0: <laughs> I, you know, it's interesting. You and I are on a similar parallel. My 16-year-old's reflexes are, are amazing. And mine are good, really good. But his yeah. are amazing. But well, carry you're on.
1: Still, you're still young enough to have them. Yes. So the, the other example was family trips. I always did all the arrangements. As soon as I knew where the trip was going to be, I made the reservations, the airlines and cars, and I arranged for where we're going to be each day and how to get from one place to another. I always did all that stuff. And three years ago, my daughter and my niece wanted to do this thing. They both live in Colorado. So we did a family thing in Steamboat Springs. Mm, Lovely. And the requirements on me were get to Denver and pay my share with a credit card. And they took care of everything from there. Amazing, And I got to tell you, that was so exhilarating. It was like, oh, my God, this is too good to believe. I basically, the total amount of work I had to do was, I don't remember if I did it or my wife did it, call an Uber to get to San Jose Airport. <laughs> I mean, that was it. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And so you're really embracing your stage and oh, you're not resisting I
1: mean, it. I mean, it's terrific. It's terrific when someone in the younger generation says, hey, I got this bill. I'm treating you. Right. That didn't ever used to happen. Right. Right. And it's I just feel so grateful and so, it feels so good. Mm. Right? I don't look for it. I, I mean, i don't go out and say, oh, it's your turn or anything. You know, that would be stupid. But But when it it happens, it's just, it just feels great.
0: Oh, that's awesome.
1: And it can be for a cup of coffee. I mean, it doesn't.
0: Love that, Jerry. Uh, So many thoughts. One of them, as we begin to wind down this interview, certainly not existentially, I'm wondering, what are some of the nuggets that you've seen, both as a psychologist and as an existential psychologist, some of the perhaps fallacies we live under that just if we could just reverse them or reexamine them we might live fuller lives so uh, one of
1: the, that's a great question and one of the biggest ones is the silicon valley phenomenon that if i have 10 million dollars yeah if i work harder i can have 30 million that's one of the biggest ones and inevitably when people are talking about that i always say that sounds exciting that's a great number Tell me how it's going to change your life. And you get that blank look.
0: Well, it isn't. Exactly. It isn't. What do they, do they, I imagine that it, there's something that they say, some basic idea that leads them to the idea that tripling their net worth is going to be worth the pursuit. Well, is there,
1: when I, have- as soon as I ask the question, they start wondering about it and they say, well, maybe it isn't. I want to make sure I have enough. And I assure them the 10 million will cover their retirement pretty well,
0: right? (laughs) Even here in Silicon Valley.
1: Even even here, yeah. Way more than cover. I said, right now, you're talking about how much money you want to leave to charity and your children. You know, so I mean, and they have some decisions about that. But what do you want to pay for that money? What part of your life? Do you want to give up 10 years of your life to do that? One of the great fallacies is that one. Definitely. Another one is the grass is always greener. You know, that's not new to us, but
0: right. But how does it manifest? I mean, how it, it hides itself. I mean, if it were so obvious, people wouldn't fall under the a victim of that fallacy. Well, it looks greener. It sure does.
1: I'll tell you why the grass is greener in someone else's yard, more fertilizer.
0: <laughs> right. You know, talking about high school reunions, I remember living under a fallacy that everybody had it easier than I did. I was positive. That's I was certain one. of this. There's no question in my mind that it sucked to be me and everybody else. It was probably pretty good mm-hmm. until I you know, grew up and learned that actually it actually sucks to be a lot of people. And not only that, but often people look like they're doing great and they are just struggling. They're going through that existential struggle. I, I forget if it's a Socrates quote or, but, but, you know, be kind to everyone for everyone is facing a struggle. So let's talk about retirement for a second. You and I have spoken about this, but in the big four, for example, there is an enforced retirement age. If you are an employee of EY, KPMG, Deloitte, or any of the PwC, it's generally before 60. And I've worked with such individuals and they have absolutely no idea what to do with their retirement. Instead of it becoming a delight, it's a befuddlement. And sometimes it's more catastrophic than that because there is an age at which men in particular seem to die. And it seems to be around 62 from those careers. So you know, What's going on here and what can be okay. done?
1: So that's another whole part of the book, actually, that I right. talked about. But I also want to say something about the big four and that policy. Uh, they're on something really good because, you know, older people are terrible at investing. I mean, look at all the mistakes that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger make.
0: Oh, they're the worst. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Except for the fact that my 12 year old holds them as his idols. <laughs> he thinks oh, they're the greatest. Berkshire yeah. Hathaway, the best. You know, so, you know, yeah. it's a
1: stupid policy. However. You need to have something you're going to. And I tell people who retire, the first thing you've got to focus is you need to have a calendar. You cannot just let the days run because you're going to end up watching soaps on TV. Oh, my God. And you're going to die. So you always have to have something to go to. And that's why 40s to 60s is such an important time, because that's when you lay the groundwork for what you may be working toward. Like my friend. Who's a rock and roll singer now?
0: That's exactly where my mind went. Yeah. Where the guitar uh, is he's also guitarist too, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So where are you going? And if people don't have something to go to, it's time to start thinking about things that just turn you on. It's not going to interfere with your business or your career that just turn you on and see what's going to float your boat. I so had you have a lot of experience with this, particularly because I work with a lot of military <sighs> who oh, for even right. at 30 years, they're retiring in their 50s.
0: And I think of that end of Hurt Locker where the guy was tearing apart IEDs and he comes back to a supermarket in the United States and there's just no meaning here. And he wanted to go back to Iraq and deal with the IEDs. That was more meaningful. Yep. And I think about Amy Rosniewski out of Yale School of Management who came up with the idea of job crafting, finding the meaning, finding that existential meaning, kind of giving credence the idea of the three bricklayers, the each of them being asked what are they, what they're doing. The first one's saying, I'm laying bricks. The second one's saying, I'm building a building. The third one's saying, I'm building a house of worship where people find community and a connection to their spirit. And I'm thinking about you and that you're considering your own retirement after one of the most celebrated careers as just to name a few of the things that you've done that have been unbelievably meaningful. I can only imagine a celebrated professor. Award winning in all departments. You've been a a psychologist. You've been a a published author of research, a published author of books, and so many other things you've presented at international conferences. And yet you're pondering retirement. And I'm wondering, how could you, Jerry, create a meaningful retirement after such an incredible career?
1: Well, and that's a real challenge for me because one of the things I love most in the world is teaching. And so I'm still teaching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And the beauty of my world, the academic world, is there's no retirement age. There's yeah. no mandatory retirement age. I don't want to teach past when I'm excited or past when I'm giving something to people, obviously. And so I'm looking Santa Clara's got a nice phased retirement program, which I might take part of, you know, sometime soon. But the issue of retirement is it's the wrong word. The, mm. the word, and I spend a lot of time in the book talking about this, is the key is rebalancing. It isn't about going off and resting. That was much more appropriate when people were doing manual labor most of their lives. Their bodies totally. were fine. You know, how can I rebalance? What do I enjoy in my life besides work Does being with my grandkids? Is that more fun? Is that more gratifying than some of the work I'm doing? Maybe I want to do more of that. Is Catching up on reading. There are a lot of books I haven't read I want to read. There's more writing I want to do. I'm writing my memoirs right now, in part because the life that I grew up in doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. The neighborhood's gone. The area's gone. The ambiance is gone. It's just gone. And I want my kids to have a sense of it. So I'm writing a book for two people.
0: Which is your two children. Yeah. That's beautiful.
1: You know. So, So I don't have an easy answer for you. I wish I did. I mean, my wife just. She was hiking part of the week. She just is hiking more now. She's part of a book club. She's doing all these things. She's very happy.
0: And yet I think you've alluded to it. And I'm going to simplify it by simply saying, go where there's juice, go where it's juicy. And it could be reading those lit books on your book list, could be writing and recreating your childhood so that your children can experience it. It could be hiking. It could be Just being with your grandchildren. I think that's so beautiful. And I
1: love dividing the word recreation into recreation. I just think that's a beautiful way to do it because we want to create what's right for us at this age.
0: Mm. And I'm thinking about the Spanish word for retirement, which is jubilación, which means jubilation, so to speak. And I'm like, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. To be jubilant the entire time, to find a way to really finish this life strong, so to speak, with so many of the intrinsic qualities that make life good. Mm-hmm. And perhaps going forward and going back kind of i thinking the face of Janice. Can, can I
1: just grab a little bit? It's going forward and it's reaching back. Going forward and reaching back. It's I much better. I don't think it's going back. I don't think I don't think we can be.
0: That's right. We can't go back
1: part of the high school marching band anymore. That's right. Right. Especially if we played the tuba. <laughs>
0: right? I don't think we can do that. By the way, well, that's the title of a book right there. We can't be a part of the high school marching band anymore, especially if we play the tuba.
1: Perfect. But you know, we can go back to the love of music.
0: So, so good. Reaching back. That's so much better. Yeah. It's interesting how language is so crucial to living life well, being able to State it and with good language, because if somebody's thinking about going back, it would be a fallacy. But reaching back is doable.
1: My mother-in-law is 91 now. She lives near us, mm-hmm. and she says the past decade has been the best decade of her life.
0: Isn't that incredible? To what does she attribute that?
1: From the outside, it looks like she really loves bingo, <laughs> and she she loves bingo. She,
0: oh, yeah, you know how to get a whole bunch of seniors to shout expletives all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Yell bingo.
1: I mean, but she's with other people her age. She's doing things that she can do. I mean, it just, she's just, she has no responsibilities. And she's loving it. She's loving it. You know, she had seven children and now they're responsible for her. You know, that's pretty good.
0: That's pretty good. I'm noticing that time is yeah. marching and I have one final question for you, Jerry. Gosh, this is entirely... Exceedingly delightful to be with you, as I imagined it would be. If you had the magical ability to confer upon all humanity one insight or one skill that would dramatically improve the life of the individual as well as the lives of society, what would that insight or skill be that would help? Well,
1: I'm you? tempted to be glib and say buy low, sell high.
0: <laughs> but,
1: but in truth, the answer to your question is that intimacy is the antidote to the fears of mortality. Connection with other people, experiencing what Buber called the I-Thou relationship, Mm -hmm. is as good as it gets.
0: That is the North Star. That's everything. That's
1: That's the North Star. And Buber's work is, if you haven't read I and Thou, it's a tough book to read, but it's incredibly brilliant.
0: And just for those who aren't initiated with Buber's idea of I and Thou versus the I and It relationship, Care to share what that is?
1: The I-thou relationship is taking in the other person, the other being, totally, and being with them in a way that transforms both of you. The I-thou relationship is the functional relationship, and you need both, of course. And I-thou relationships are always momentary.
0: You know, I've heard so many people speak about this relationship, and I've never heard it said as well. And oh, It's not oh, surprising, Jerry. Well, Jerry, I have a funny feeling I'm going to already want you back, but thank you so much for your time today. You've given us
1: this is a great pleasure. Great pleasure. It's always a joy talking to you. And this has been a great pleasure.
0: This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to super psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.